This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Robin Cotter, July 2007. Miscellaneous Essays by Thomas de Quincey. Joan of Arc, Part One. In reference to Monsieur Michelet's History of France. Footnote Arc. Modern France, that should know a great deal better than myself, insists that the name is not d'Arc, for example, of Arc, but d'Arc. Now it happens sometimes that if a person whose position guarantees his access to the best information will content himself with a gloomy dogmatism, striking the table with his fist, and saying in a terrific voice, It is so, and there's an end of it, one bows deferentially, and submits. But if, unhappily for himself, won by this docility, he relents too amiably into reasons and arguments, probably one raises an insurrection against him that may never be crushed. For in the fields of logic one can skirmish, perhaps as well as he. Had he confined himself to dogmatism, he would have entrenched his position in darkness, and have hidden his own vulnerable points. But coming down to bare reasons, he lets in light, and one sees where to plant the blows." Now the worshipful reason of modern France for disturbing the old received spelling is that Jean Hordal, a descendant of La Pucelle's brother, spelled the name Dark in 1612. But what of that? Beside the chances that Monsieur Hordal might be a gigantic blockhead, it is notorious of what small matter of spelling Providence had thought fit to disperse amongst man in the seventeenth century, was all monopolized by printers, in France much more so. End footnote. What is to be thought of her? What is to be thought of the poor shepherd-girl from the hills and forests of Lorraine, that, like the Hebrew shepherd-boy from the hills and forests of Judea, rose suddenly out of the quiet, out of the safety, out of the religious inspiration, rooted in deep pastoral solitudes, to a station in the van of armies, and to the more perilous station at the right hand of kings? The Hebrew boy inaugurated his patriotic mission by an act, by a victorious act, such as no man could deny. But so did the girl of Lorraine, if we read her story as it was read by those who saw her nearest. Adverse armies bore witness to the boy as no pretender, but so they did to the gentle girl. Judged by the voices of all who saw them, from a station of good will, both were found true and loyal to any promises involved in their first acts. Enemies it was that made the difference between their subsequent fortunes. The boy rose to a splendor and a noonday prosperity, both personal and public, that rang through the records of his people and became a byword amongst his posterity for a thousand years, until the sceptre was departing from Judah. The poor forsaken girl, on the contrary, drank not herself from that cup of rest which she had secured for France. She never sang together with the songs that rose in her native Dom Remy, as echoes to the departing steps of invaders. She mingled not in the festal dances at Vaucouleurs, 
which celebrated in rapture the redemption of France. No, for her voice was then silent. No, for her feet were dust. Pure, innocent, noble-hearted girl, whom from earliest youth ever I believed in as full of truth and self-sacrifice, this was amongst the strongest pledges for thy side, that never once, no, not for a moment of weakness, didst thou revel in the vision of coronets and honour from man. Coronets for thee? Oh, no! Honours, if they come, when all is over, are for those that share thy blood. Footnote. Those that share thy blood, a collateral relative of Joanna's, was subsequently ennobled by the title of Julie. End footnote. Daughter of Domremy, when the gratitude of thy king shall awaken, thou wilt be sleeping the sleep of the dead. Call her king of France, but she will not hear thee. Cite her by the apparitors to come and receive a robe of honour, but she will be found en contumace. When the thunders of universal France, as even yet may happen, shall proclaim the grandeur of the poor shepherd-girl that gave up all for her country, thy ear, young shepherd-girl, will have been deaf for five centuries. To suffer and to do, that was thy portion in this life. To do, never for thyself, always for others. To suffer, never in the persons of generous champions, always in thy own, that was thy destiny." and not for a moment was it hidden from thyself. Life, thou saidst, is short, and the sleep which is in the grave is long. Let me use that life, so transitory, for the glory of those heavenly dreams destined to comfort the sleep which is so long. This pure creature, pure from every suspicion of even a visionary self-interest, even as she was pure in senses more obvious, never once did this holy child, as regarded herself, relax from her belief in the darkness that was travelling to meet her. She might not prefigure the very manner of her death. She saw not in vision, perhaps, the aerial altitude of the fiery scaffold, the spectators without end on every road pouring into Rouen, as to a coronation, the surging smoke, the volleying flames, the hostile faces all around, the pitying eye that lurked but here and there, until nature and imperishable truth broke loose from artificial restraints. These might not be apparent through the mists of the hurrying future, but the voice that called her to death, that she heard for ever. Great was the throne of France even in those days, and great was he that sat upon it. But well Joanna knew that not the throne, nor he that sat upon it, was for her. But on the contrary, that she was for them, not she by them, but they by her, should rise from the dust. Gorgeous were the lilies of France, and for centuries had the privilege to spread their beauty over land and sea, until in another century the wrath of God and man combined to wither them. But well Joanna knew, early at Domremy, she had read that bitter truth, that the lilies of France would decorate no garland for her. Flower nor bud, bell nor blossom, would ever bloom for her. But stop! What reason is there for taking up this subject of Joanna precisely in this spring of 1847? Might it not have been left till the spring of 1947? Or perhaps left till called for? Yes, but it is called for, and clamorously. 
you are aware, reader, that amongst the many original thinkers whom modern France has produced, one of the reputed leaders is Monsieur Michelet. All these writers are of a revolutionary cast, not in a political sense merely, but in all senses, mad oftentimes as March hares, crazy with the laughing gas of recovered liberty, drunk with the wine-cup of their mighty revolution, snorting, whinnying, throwing up their heels like wild horses in the boundless pampas, and running races of defiance with snipes, or with the winds, or with their own shadows, if they can find nothing else to challenge. Some time or other, I that have leisure to read, may introduce you, that have not, to two or three dozen of these writers, of whom I can assure you beforehand that they are often profound, and at intervals are even as impassioned as if they were come of our best English blood, and sometimes, because it is not pleasant that people should be too easy to understand, almost as obscure as if they had been suckled by transcendental German nurses. But now, confining our attention to Monsieur Michelet, who was quite sufficient to lead a man into a gallop, requiring two relays, at least, of fresh readers. We in England, who know him best by his worst book, the book against priests, etc., which has been most circulated, know him disadvantageously. That book is a rhapsody of incoherence. Monsieur Michelet was light-headed, I believe, when he wrote it and it is well that his keepers overtook him in time to intercept a second part, but his history of France is quite another thing. A man in whatsoever craft he sails cannot stretch away out of sight when he is linked to the windings of the shore by towing ropes of history. Facts and the consequences of facts draw the writer back to the falconer's lure from the giddiest heights of speculation. Here, therefore, in his France, if not always free from flightiness, if now and then off like a rocket for an airy wheel in the clouds, Monsieur Michelet, with natural politeness, never forgets that he has left a large audience waiting for him on earth, and gazing upwards in anxiety for his return, return, therefore, he does. But history, though clear of certain temptations in one direction, has separate dangers of its own. It is impossible, so, to write a history of France, or of England, works becoming every hour more indispensable to the inevitably political man of this day, without perilous openings for assault. If I, for instance, on the part of England, should happen to turn my labours into that channel, and, on the model of Lord Percy, going to Chevy Chase, quote, a vow to God should make my pleasure in the Michelet woods, three summer days to take, unquote. probably from simple delirium I might hunt Monsieur Michelet into delirium tremant. Two strong angels stand by the side of history, whether French history or English, as heraldic supporters, the angel of research on the left hand, that must read millions of dusty parchments and of pages blotted with lies, the angel of meditation on the right hand, that must cleanse these lying records with fire, even as of the old the draperies of asbestos were cleansed, and must quicken them into regenerated life. Willingly I acknowledge that no man will ever avoid innumerable errors of detail. With so vast a compass of ground to traverse, this is impossible. But such errors, though I have a bushel on hand at Monsieur Michelet's service, are not the game I chase, 
It is the bitter and unfair spirit in which M. Michelet writes against England. Even that, after all, is but my secondary object. The real one is Joanna, the Pucelle d'Orléans for herself. I am not going to write the history of La Pucelle. To do this, or even circumstantially to report the history of her persecution and bitter death, of her struggle with false witnesses and with ensnaring judges, it would be necessary to have before us all the documents, and therefore the collection only now forthcoming in Paris. But my purpose is narrower. There have been great thinkers, disdaining the careless judgments of contemporaries, who have thrown themselves boldly on the judgment of a far posterity, that should have had time to review, to ponder, to compare. There have been great actors on the stage of tragic humanity that might, with the same depth of confidence, have appealed from the levity of compatriot friends, too heartless for the sublime interest of their story, and too impatient for the labor of sifting its perplexities, to the magnanimity and justice of enemies. To this class belongs the maid of Ark. The Romans were too faithful to the ideal of grandeur in themselves not to relent, after a generation or two, before the grandeur of Hannibal. Mithridates, a more doubtful person, yet merely for the magic perseverance of his indomitable malice, won from the same Romans the only real honor that ever he received on earth. And we English have ever shown the same homage to stubborn enmity. To work unflinchingly for the ruin of England, to say through life, by word and by deed, Delenda et Anglia Victru, that one purpose of malice, faithfully pursued, has quartered some people upon our national funds of homage as by a perpetual annuity. Better than an inheritance of service rendered to England herself has sometimes proved the most insane hatred to England. Hyder Ali, even his far inferior son Tipu and Napoleon, have all benefited by this disposition amongst ourselves to exaggerate the merit of diabolical enmity. Not one of these men was ever capable, in a solitary instance, of praising an enemy. What do you say to that, reader? And yet in their behalf we consent to forget, not their crimes only, but, which is worse, their hideous bigotry and anti-magnanimous egotism, for nationality it was not. Sofren and some half-dozen of other French nautical heroes, because rightly they did us all the mischief they could, which was really great, are names justly reverenced in England. On the same principle, La Pucelle d'Orléans, the victorious enemy of England, has been destined to receive her deepest commemoration from the magnanimous justice of Englishmen. Joanna, as we in England should call her, but according to her own statement, Jean, or as Monsieur Michelet asserts, Jean d'Arc, was born at Domremy, a village on the marshes of Lorraine and Champagne, and dependent upon the town of Vaucouleurs. Footnote. Jean. Monsieur Michelet asserts that there was a mystical meaning in that era, in calling a child Jean, it implied a secret commendation of a child, if not a dedication, to St. John the Evangelist, the beloved disciple, the apostle of love and mysterious visions. But really, as the name was so exceedingly common, few people will detect a mystery in calling a boy by the name of Jack, 
though it does seem mysterious to call a girl Jack. It may be less so in France, where a beautiful practice has always prevailed of giving to a boy his mother's name, preceded and strengthened by a male name, as Charles Anne and Victor Victoire. In cases where a mother's memory has been unusually dear to a son, this vocal memento of her, locked into the circle of his own name, gives to it the tenderness of a testamentary relic or a funeral ring. I presume, therefore, that La Pucelle must have borne the baptismal names of Jean Jean, the latter with no reference to so sublime a person as St. John, but simply to some relative. End footnote. I have called her a Lorrainer, not simply because the word is prettier, but because Champagne too odiously reminds us English of what are for us imaginary wines, which undoubtedly La Pucelle tasted as rarely as we English. We English, because the Champagne of London is chiefly grown in Devonshire, La Pucelle, because the Champagne of Champagne never by any chance flowed into the fountain of Domremy, from which only she drank. Monsieur Michelet will have her to be a champagnoise, and for no better reason than that she took after her father, who happened to be a champagnoise. I am sure she did not, for her father was a filthy old fellow, whom I shall soon teach the judicious reader to hate. But, says Monsieur Michelet, arguing the case physiologically, quote, she had none of the Lorrainian asperity, unquote. No, it seems she had only, quote, the gentleness of Champagne, its simplicity mingled with sense and acuteness, as you find it in Joinville, unquote. All these things she had, and she was worth a thousand Joinvilles, meaning either the prince so-called, or the fine old crusader. But still, though I loved Joanna dearly, I cannot shut my eyes entirely to the Lorraine element of asperity in her nature. No, really now, she must have had a shade of that, though very slightly developed, a mere soucon, as French cooks express it in speaking of cayenne pepper, when she caused so many of our English throats to be cut. But could she do less? No, I always say so. But still you never saw a person kill even a trout with a perfectly champagne face of gentleness and simplicity, though often, no doubt, with considerable acuteness. All your cooks and butchers wear a Lorraine cast of expression. These disputes, however, turn on refinements too nice. Domremy stood upon the frontiers, and, like other frontiers, produced a mixed race representing the sea and the trans. A river, it is true, formed the boundary line at this point. The river Meuse, and that, in old days, might have divided the populations. But in these days it did not. There were bridges, there were ferries, and weddings crossed from the right bank to the left. Here lay two great roads, not so much for travellers, that were few, as for armies, that were too many, by half. These two roads, one of which was the great high road between France and Germany, decussated, at this very point, which is a learned way of saying that they formed a St. Andrew's cross, or letter X. I hope the compositor will choose a good large X 
in which case the point of intersection, the locus of conflux for these four diverging arms, will finish the reader's geographical education, by showing him to a hair's breadth where it was that Domremy stood. These roads, so grandly situated, as great trunk arteries between two mighty realms, footnote, and reminding one of that inscription, so justly admired Paul Richter, which a Russian Tsarina placed on a guide-post near Moscow. This is the road that leads to Constantinople. End footnote. And haunted forever by wars or rumours of wars, decussated, for anything I know to the contrary, absolutely under Joanna's bedroom window, one rolling away to the right, past Monsieur d'Arc's old barn, and the other unaccountably preferring, but there's no disputing about tastes, to sweep round that odious man's odious pigsty to the left. Things being situated, as is here laid down, viz., in respect of the decussation, and in respect of Joanna's bedroom, it follows that, if she had dropped her glove by accident from her chamber window into the very bull's-eye of the target, in the centre of X, not one of several great potentates could, though all animated by the sincerest desires for the peace of Europe, have possibly come to any clear understanding on the question of whom the glove was meant for. Whence the candid reader perceives at once the necessity for at least four bloody wars. Falling, indeed, a little farther, as, for instance, into the pigsty, the glove could not have furnished to the most peppery prince any shadow of excuse for arming. He would not have had a leg to stand upon in taking such a perverse line of conduct. But if it fell, as by the hypothesis it did, into the one sole point of ground common to four kings, it is clear that, instead of no leg to stand upon, eight separate legs would have had no ground to stand upon, unless by treading on each other's toes. The philosopher, therefore, sees clearly the necessity of a war, and regrets that sometimes nations do not wait for grounds of war so solid. In the circumstances supposed, though the four kings might be unable to see their way clearly without the help of gunpowder to any decision upon Joanna's intention, she, poor thing, never could mistake her intentions for a moment. All her love was for France, and therefore any glove she might drop into the quadrivinium must be wickedly missent by the post-office, if it found its way to any king but the king of France. On whatever side of the border chance had thrown Joanna, the same love to France would have been nurtured. For it is a strange fact, noticed by Monsieur Michelet and others, that the dukes of Bar and Lorraine had for generations pursued the policy of eternal warfare with France on their account yet also of eternal amity and league with France, in case anybody else presumed to attack her. Let peace settle upon France, and before long you might rely upon seeing the little vixen Lorraine flying at the throat of France. Let Franco be assailed by a formidable enemy, and instantly you saw a duke of Lorraine or Bar insisting on having his throat cut in support of France which favour accordingly was cheerfully granted to them in three successive battles by the English and by the Turkish Sultan, viz. at Crece, at Nicopolis, and at Agincourt. This sympathy with France, during great eclipses, 
in those that during ordinary seasons were always teasing her with brawls and guerrilla inroads, strengthened the natural piety to France of those that were confessedly the children of her own house. The outposts of France, as one may call the great frontier provinces, were of all localities the most devoted to the fleur-de-lis. To witness, at any great crisis, the generous devotion to these lilies of the little fiery cousin that in gentler weather was forever tilting at her breast, could not been fan the zeal of the legitimate daughter. Whilst to occupy a post of honour on the frontiers against an old hereditary enemy of France would naturally have stimulated this zeal by a sentiment of martial pride, had there even been no other stimulant to zeal by a sense of danger always threatening, and of hatred always smouldering. That great four-headed road was a perpetual memento to patriotic ardour. To say this way lies the road to Paris— and that other way, to Aix-les-Chapelles, this to Prague, that to Vienna, nourished the warfare of the heart by daily ministrations of sense. The eye that watched for the gleams of lance or helmet from the hostile frontier, the ear that listened for the groaning of wheels, made the high road itself with its relations to centres so remote into a manual of patriotic enmity. The situation, therefore, locally, of Joanna, was full of profound suggestions to a heart that listened for the stealthy steps of change, and fear that too surely were in motion. But if the place were grand, the times, the burthen of the times, was far more so. The air overhead, in its upper chambers, were hurtling with the obscure sound, was dark with sullen fermenting of storms that had been gathering for a hundred and thirty years. The battle of Agincourt in Joanna's childhood had reopened the wounds of France. Crecy and Poitiers, those withering overthrows for the chivalry of France, had been tranquilized by more than half a century, but this resurrection of their trumpet wails made the whole series of battles and endless skirmishes take their stations as parts in one drama. The graves that had closed sixty years ago seemed to fly open in sympathy with a sorrow that echoed their own. The monarchy of France laboured in extremity, rocked and reeled like a ship fighting with the darkness of monsoons. The madness of the poor king, Charles the Sixth, falling in at such a crisis, like the case of women labouring in childbirth during the storming of a city, trebled the awfulness of the time. Even the wild story of the incident which had immediately occasioned the explosion of this madness, the case of a man unknown, gloomy, and perhaps maniacal himself, coming out of a forest at noonday, laying his hand upon the bridle of the king's horse, checking him for a moment to say, quote, O king, thou art betrayed, unquote, and then vanishing, no man knew whither, as he had appeared, for no man knew what, fell in with the universal prostration of mind that laid France on her knees as before the slow unweaving of some ancient prophetic doom. The famines, the extraordinary diseases, the insurrections of the peasantry up and down Europe, these were chords struck from the same mysterious harp, but these were transitory chords. There had been others of deeper and more sonorous sound. The termination of the Crusades, the destruction of the Templars, the papal interdicts, 
the tragedies caused or suffered by the house of Anjou, by the emperor, these were full of a more permanent significance. But since then the colossal figure of feudalism was seen standing, as it were on tiptoe at Crecy, for flight from earth. That was a revolution unparalleled, yet that was a trifle by comparison with the more fearful revolutions that were mining below the church. By her own internal schisms, by the abominable spectacle of a double pope, so that no man, except through political bias, could even guess which was heaven's vicegerent, and which was the creature of hell, she was already rehearsing, as in still earlier forms she had rehearsed, the first rent in her foundations, reserved for the coming century, which no man should ever heal. These were the loftiest peaks of the cloudland in the skies, that to the scientific gazer first caught the colors of the new morning in advance. But the whole vast range, alike of sweeping glooms overhead, dwelt upon all meditative minds, even those that could not distinguish the altitudes, nor decipher the forms. It was, therefore, not her own age alone, as affected by its immediate calamities, that lay with such weight upon Joanna's mind, but her own age, as one section in a vast mysterious drama, unweaving through a century back, and drawing nearer continually to crisis after crisis. Cataracts and rapids were heard roaring ahead, and signs were seen far back, by help of old men's memories, which answered secretly to signs now coming forward on the eye, even as locks answer to keys. It was not wonderful that in such a haunted solitude, with such a haunted heart, Joanna should see angelic visions, and hear angelic voices. These voices whispered to her the duty imposed upon herself of delivering France. Five years she listened to these monitory voices with internal struggles. At length she could resist no longer. Doubt gave way, and she left her home in order to present herself at the Dauphin's court. End of Joan of Arc, Part One.